What's your favorite way to learn? I like graphic novels because I can see who's talking. My grandma reads the newspaper to me. I like movies on TV. I play learning games on my dad's tablet. I like reading plain old regular books with lots of detail. This is Worlds Awaiting, helping children read, write, see, speak, think, and listen. Here's our host, Rachel Wadham. I'm Rachel Wadham, and welcome to Worlds Awaiting, helping children and parents explore the world of literacy. Today, we'll be exploring the worlds of Alice in Wonderland, literary practices, and illustrations. Our first guest is debut author L.L. McKinney, ready to talk about her first novel. Next, we'll discuss good and bad literary practices with author and researcher Nell Duke. Finally, we'll chat with Julie Olson about her illustration process. Before we leave you, I'll step around the librarian's table with librarians from around Utah to talk about children, books, and life at the library. Along with our interviews, we'll have a reading of the dance and explore a common saying among writers. But before all that, let's take a glimpse into my world. Rachel's my favorite animal is the penguin. So it should come as no surprise to you that as a girl, one of my all-time favorite books was Mr. Popper's Penguins by Richard and Florence Atwater. Originally published in 1938, this Newbery Honor Award-winning book spoke to me as a child because who would not want to live with a flock of penguins? But it also spoke to me because of the realities it conveyed. It showed that living with penguins would be hard and there would be lots of challenges to face. So it would help me understand the fact that while living with a penguin would be cool, it certainly would not be perfect. In 2012, thoughts of my childhood fondness for Mr. Popper's Penguins returned when I read the Caldecott Award-winning picture book by Tony Buzio and illustrated by David Small called One Cool Friend. The book's main character, Elliot, also dreams of owning a penguin, and when his father unexpectedly agrees, Elliot finds out just what living with a penguin is like. I love this book because it adds on a wonderful theme about making friends that I never found in Mr. Popper's Penguins, but at the same time, it made me go back and read an old favorite. This experience underscores one of the things I believe about literature, and that is that books make connections. Connections happen between a book and their reader as we see our own experiences in the pages we read. Connections happen between books, just as they did for me with these two penguin books. And books can even make strong connections to the world around us as we see events and themes playing out in our real world. For me, this reality, that literature does not exist as a single entity, but connects to us, itself, and the world, is one of the things that makes books and reading richer. This is also an important key to know because I have found as a teacher an avid book recommender, one of the best ways to find a book that will make a great fit for a reader is to see how it connects to them, their reading, and their world. So maybe next time you're looking for a great book for one of your readers, you'll take a tip from Rachel's World and take a closer look at book connections. Rachel's World Alice in Wonderland may have been published in the 1800s, but it's still a relevant classic for teens today. From the Mad Hatter's Tea Party to the Red Queen screaming off with your head, these moments continue to show up in new retellings and reimaginings.
We have debut author L.L. McKinney on the phone with us today to talk about her new Alice adaptation, A Blade So Black. Welcome. Thank you for having me. I am so excited to have you because you have just recently published a very innovative and exciting book. And I am so excited to introduce our listeners to your amazing novel. So to start out, why don't you explain a little bit about the background or kind of the plot arc of your novel for our listeners? Sure. Um, Sort of the pitch that has been there since its inception uh, on through now is that A Blade So Black both asks and answers the question, what if Buffy fell down the rabbit hole instead of Alice? I love it. Um, It's like a Alice in Wonderland retelling and it has elements of Buffy um, because what Alice does is she crosses back and forth between Wonderland, uh, which is like a real world, um, as opposed to like a dream or, you know, like an acid trip or whatever was happening (laughs) with the original Alice. Um, So she goes there and she fights these monsters called nightmares, uh, which are physical manifestations of humanity's fears. Um, And it's to keep those fears from crossing into our world and doing real harm. And uh, Alice has been at this for a little bit of time and her mentor winds up poisoned. So she has to journey further into Wonderland than she's ever been. And she could literally lose her head. That is so amazing. And I, I think if, you know, we don't have our listeners rushing out right now to grab the novel, I hope the next, you know, few minutes as we talk is going to convince them. Because it is a wonderfully amazing, complex story that brings just some wonderful connections to, to two fairly iconic stories that were already told. So tell me a little bit about why did you pick this mashup? Why Alice and why Buffy? What what was that that came into your mind that wanted those two things to interact in this way? Well, it started as a what if. So like, okay, so it's one random weekday and I'm sitting on my mom's couch, right? And I'm watching Supernatural reruns as one does. And they were referencing Buffy. Well, earlier, Disney had announced that they were going to be doing, you know, their live action version of Alice in Wonderland. And my immediate reaction to this uh, at first was nobody asked for this. Like, why, why are we doing this? Um, I wound up enjoying the movie greatly. Um, and just that day, having read that earlier and sitting and watching that show, they sort of mashed up together in my head. And I'm like, well, are they going to just retell, you know, their their cartoon? Because that's the thing that Disney is doing now is, you know, making the live action uh, versions of their already existent movies. And so I was like, well, if this is live action, uh, that means this is a real place. It's not a dream. If it's a real place, that means the Jabberwocky is real. Uh, that's dangerous. So like, What's she going to do? Well, she's going to have knives. And it sort of went from there. Like, I wrote a fight scene, and I liked it. So I kept going. And that's essentially how this story was born. That is so wonderful to see that kind of inspiration and where all of this comes from. And it it 
it's such a wonderful mashup. I love the sense that you bring to the novel of kind of the darkness of both kind of the Buffy side of the story and the Alice side of the story. I think sometimes we think of Alice as a more lighthearted story, but it really isn't. It's it's a very dark, stressful story. And one of the things I love about your novel is that you bring the perfect characters to this world that you've built. Your main character and all of the supporting characters are just so wonderful. Particularly, I love your Hatter, your Mad Hatter, and who is the mentor to your Alice. So mm-hmm. where did where did he come from? I'm very intrigued to know where 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 did he come from. He was one of the few characters that showed up, sort of like, okay, I'm here. What are we doing? Um, I didn't like because some of them, like the Tweedles, are there, and I was. They didn't show up as clearly at first. I didn't know if they were going to be from Wonderland. It turns out like, you know, they're human. Um, But he was sort of there from the beginning, somewhat like Alice. um, Because when I decided Alice was going to go back and forth, I thought of the Looking Glass pub. And I'm like, well, who's going to, you know, run this place? And he's like, I I will over here. Um, And so he was just sort of there from the start. And he's not a character that I really saw anywhere else um because like for him his uh whole quirkiness is that there was a war in wonderland like full-blown just terrible sort of circumstances and he has a ptsd from having been through that he was a high-ranking official during all of that he was on the battlefield and so he's here and the world, both ours and Wonderland, has sort of formed who he is because he's been in our world for a bit of time because uh, Wonderlandians are immortal. So he's he's one of the more interesting characters that just sort of showed up and gradually has told me a little bit about himself as opposed to me having to sort of think him up. Well, I'm glad he showed up because he's one of my favorite characters in the book and and adds such a rich texture to the book. But the other characters that add rich texture to this, to me, are Alice's two friends, her two human friends. How did they come to be? What was what was their genesis? So they are actually, um, I sort of quilted together different aspects of my friends from high school. Um, some of my best friends from now who I didn't have in high school and cousins and so forth. Like, this is how we were um, as kids. This is how we hung out. This is what we talked about. I was totally that kid who was off with like her small circle of friends. And we talked about anime and Dungeons and Dragons all day. Like that, that's what we did. Um, and they're sort of influenced by my sisters as well because uh, one of my sisters is a literal like sash wearing crown having beauty queen. And I sort of based a lot of her mannerisms are in uh, Alice's best friend, Courtney. Um, so it's, it's, I took pieces of different people that I knew because uh, basing a whole person on a whole you know, individual from your life can be a really great thing, but it can also <laughs> go really, really badly. Um, if Because I have had my family, like, is this me? I'm like, no, no, that's not you. I promise. So it, it's, it's, people get a little prickly when 
you know, characters who maybe quite possibly might get their heads cut off might be based <laughs> on them. So, yeah. You have to be careful with that. that yeah. That's one of the hazards of being an author, I'm afraid. <laughs> you have to be careful with those kinds of things. The other thing that I really love about your, about your book is just how vivid your description is. Particularly, this is a very action-packed book, um, mm-hmm. as most people have taken, and there's lots of really intricate fight scenes, especially the climatic ending fight scene of this book. I don't think I'm giving away anything when I say there's a climatic fight scene. But how did you write those? Because you use such amazing description. And I think that particularly when something's so intricate as a fight going on and lots of things are happening, that that could be tricky to write. So how did you address those challenges of writing these really intricate action scenes? I am a very visual writer. If I can't imagine it happening, I can't put it on the page. So I have to be able to sort of see it for myself. Um, And I also, uh, I mentioned anime earlier. I grew up watching a lot of fight anime. Like my father, huge Dragon Ball Z fan and has been from like its inception. Uh, So it was on all the time and all they do on that show is fight and then power up to fight some more. and I also play a lot of video games. Like my family, we had the first Mortal Kombat. Uh, we are a Tekken family. We have tournaments, you know, around the holidays. And so all of those sort of visually tuned in to what I had been seeing and growing up with. Um, plus, I mean, I would maybe deny the worst of it, but there were times where I would like, see one of my sisters and be like, come here real quickly. I need to see if somebody's arm will actually twist this way. <laughs> and they, I mean, they, they were good sports about it. Um, but sometimes it really takes one, two or three people to try and figure out if the human body can physically accomplish this. And if it can't, you know, cause there are instances where stuff happens and, you know, people get hurt. Um, if this is going to, take them out of the fight if it's gonna hurt how badly is it gonna hurt so it's it's a lot of imagination and also very badly done choreography in various living rooms that's so fun to know because the prose that you write has that very visual kind of cinematic quality to it, which which I think is just wonderful, particularly when it comes to that kind of complex thing that you're describing. I could really imagine it and see it in my mind as, as I read it, which just makes the, the novel that much more engaging. As this novel has gone out into the world and, and been received out there, what kind of response are you getting from your fans and readers? I am getting a lot of uh, similar things like people love Hada. Um, they love Alice's friends. Alice's mom is becoming a fan favorite. Um, she was also one of my favorite characters to write. Um, and it's people are loving um, just seeing Wonderland in this new light. Like, you know, we got the whimsy and we got the uh, various creatures that are floating around, but it is sort of this dark gritty side to wonderland like some stuff went down and it was some big heavy dark stuff and both the realm and the people are still recovering Uh, so it was very real people 
are really gravitating uh, towards that and towards Alice as a character, as a human being, you know, trying to cope with her mom and having um, lost her father, which is how the book starts, which isn't a spoiler. Like there are excerpts everywhere Um, and dealing with her friends and, you know, just trying to be a normal teenager who happens to kill monsters in her spare time. Well, thank you so much, Elle, for that beautiful novel that you've written. So I hope if we didn't capture you at the beginning, listeners out there, that we have now captured you and you're all going to run out and get a copy of A Blade So Black and have your own journey with Alice in this wonderful new context. Thank you so much. Thank you. This was great. L.L. McKinney debuts as an author with her book, A Blade So Black. Next, it's story time with a reading of the poem, The Dance, by R.C. Lenneman. When good nights have been prattled, and prayers have been said, and the last little sunbeam is tucked in bed, then skirting the trees on a carpet of snow, the elves and the fairies come out in a row. With a preening of wings, they are forming in rings. Pirouetting and setting, they cross and advance in a ripple of laughter and a pair for a dance. And it's oh for the boom of the fairy bassoon and the oboes and horns as they strike up a tune and the twang of the harps and the sigh of the lutes and the clash of the cymbals and the pearl of the flutes. And the fiddles sail in to the musical din while the chief all on fire with a flame for a hand rattles on the gay measure and stirs up his band. With a pointing of toes and a lifting of wrists, they're off through the whirls and the twirls and the twists, thread the maze of marvelous figures and chime with a bow to a curtsy and always keep time. All the gallant and girls in their diamonds and pearls and their gauze and their sparkles designed for a dance by the leaders of fairyland fashion in France. But the old ladies sit out by the trees, and the old beau attend them as pert as you please. And they quiz the young dancers and scorn their display, and deny any grace to the dance of today in Oberon's reign. So they heard to complain. When we went out on a night, we could temper our fun with some manners and dancing, but now there are none. But at last, though, the music goes gallantly on, and the dancers are none of them weary or gone. When the gauze is in rags and the hair is awry, comes a light in the east and a sudden cock cry. With a scurry of fear, then they all disappear, leaving never a trace of their gay little selves or the winter night dance of fairies and elves. Not every child loves to read automatically. There are so many things we do as librarians, educators, and parents to encourage our children to read. However, some of these common practices appear to go against conventional wisdom and may do more harm than good. I have Nell Duke, writer and researcher on this topic, on the phone to help us out. Welcome, Nell. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So what literary practices should we avoid using? Well, I've had a a wonderful opportunity to collaborate with an author, consultant, and educator, uh, Ellen Oliver Keene, and Heinemann Publishers to develop a series that we call Not This But That. It's based um, on the diet craze, Eat This, Not That. And the book series uh, really aims to take those practices that you're referring to, sort of practices that are conventional wisdom or they're just very common, widespread. We 
we think they work or, or we haven't really thought about it, but, you know, we, we're used to using them in our classrooms, um, that we now um, understand from, from research and um, experience really probably aren't very effective. Um, so that's been a, a great opportunity for me and, and is the source of a number of the things that I'll now say. Um, but one of the things that very, is very closely related, related to reading that we have um, had a, a book about um, by Barbara Marinak and Linda Gambrell is um, having kids read for prizes, like you know a Nerf ball or a gift certificate for pizza or um, you know tickets or balls or bracelets or those kinds of things. And um, though it's understandable that we would think that would be a powerful tool um, for, for motivating kids to read, you know, reading a certain number of pages or books so that they can get the next uh, toy. Um, what we now understand from research is that that practice might actually undermine kids' long-term motivation to read. So um, that um, really the message we're sending is, well, reading's not valuable in its own right, but, you know, it's worthwhile because you can get pizza from it or it's worthwhile because you can get a toy from it and so forth. And so what um, the authors recommend and what um, but we recommend as well is um, to try to incentivize reading through reading-related prizes or or rewards. So, for example, if you read a certain number of pages, you get to pick out any book you'd like from a set of really interesting and attractive books um, that are available uh, to children. So then what they're reading to do, essentially, is to get an opportunity to do more reading. Um, and, and we think that um, would be a more powerful approach for developing reading um, motivation. In addition, um, you know, the, the authors share a number of some of the kinds of suggestions that I've talked about around um, things like making sure that we have books that kids want to read, making sure that we're um, sort of blessing books or, you know, really sharing with um, children um, some of, of our and their peers' um, favorite books, giving children opportunities to interact uh, socially around reading and so on. So um, that's one example of a widespread uh, practice that we probably should be moving away from as a field. So how do we move away from that? I mean, it is so ubiquitous in, in the field. Um, it, it's just everywhere. So how, yeah. do, how, do we, how do we move away from it? Or how can, us, how, how can we, as particularly as concerned adults, maybe help people understand what the research is showing us? Yeah. Well, I think that, um, you know, one powerful first step is um, to take all that money and resources that we might have spent on non-reading related prizes and put that money into a set of, of books, and, and not just books, it can also be experiences like an extra um, opportunity to talk about books during the school day, um, to, to turn all of that into a, a really powerful set of um, books that kids are really interested in that they can choose um, when they have uh, to own for themselves when they've read a certain amount. So that's sort of like a, a transition from the prizes that aren't reading related to um, into prizes that are reading related. Um, but, but probably at least as important as some of these other kinds of things that I have talked about, such as, um, you know, giving opportunities during the day for kids to have social interaction around books, making sure to children are having a chance to choose the books that they want to read. So classroom practices that teachers can make part of their every 
day-to-day um, interactions with children. We can also really, I think, replace the idea of we read for prizes by making sure that when students are reading in school, that they feel like they're reading for a purpose. Um, not just reading because it's reading time and not just reading because their teacher told them to read, but reading because they have something that they really want to accomplish. Um, so, for example, um, maybe the class is going to be taking a um, field trip to a local apple orchard. And um, so the teacher makes available a bunch of books that children can choose among um, to gather information in preparation for the trip. So maybe one student is in charge of um, being able to tell everybody about three of the types of apples that are grown at the orchard, and maybe someone else uh, is in charge of identifying um, three things um, that they think everybody should know about the process of making apple cider. And maybe somebody else is um, going to be in charge of the maps to um, get everybody to the apple orchard and so on. So that, that the reading is occurring, but it's occurring for a purpose or in a context. And I love that tip because that's easily adjustable to a family context as well. As you were saying, you know, if we're going to be baking a certain kind of cake, maybe connecting our literacy to that, or if we're going to travel on a on a trip to a certain location, being able to read about that location. So building that purpose in, I think, is very much something we can do at home as well as in the classroom. I absolutely agree with you. And in fact, in a lot of ways, I think it's easier to achieve at home because our everyday lives at home give rise to so many um, reasons for reading and for writing. And um, so I, I think that that's a, a lovely idea, and especially empowering for children can be where they're reading to help um, support decisions in the family or to inform the family. So, for example, if the youngest child in the family gets to be the one who, who does some background reading and picks the three things that the family is going to do when they get to their vacation destination, that's really empowering, right? Because that child has now come, become the expert or the leader in a context in which maybe that child is usually not in that role. Um, so I, I think you're right. A family context is a great context in which to make sure we have um, real world purposes for reading and for writing. And I I think for me, too, this comes down to what you mentioned earlier, this fact of long-term motivation. So it's not just the short term. What we're trying to build here is long-term motivation for these literacy skills to help our children grow and develop into adults who are going to be able to do the things we need them to do in the world, like work and vote and all of those types of things. So this this is a really kind of integrated experience that will encourage our students to to grow up into the kind of people we want to want them to be. So any tips, any last tips that you'd give us about how we could build that like long-term motivation and and really develop readers that will be readers for the rest of their lives? Well, certainly one of the things that we can do is be a powerful model for children. So um, you know, we show them that when we're unsure about something that we're hearing about in the news that we go online and we look it up. Uh, we model for them making sure we're choosing trustworthy sites when we're looking up information online. We display a sort of curiosity like, oh, I've, I've always wondered about that. You know, let's see if this book can give us some ideas. Um, so I think any of that kind of modeling of the use of literacy as an everyday tool in our lives um, will be uh, powerful for um, children to witness both um, at home and in schools. 
So, so that's one thing I would certainly recommend. I think another thing that's really important is for us to make sure that we're appreciating the broad range of texts that um, exist in the world today and that are part of being literate. So, you know, it used to be when we thought of literacy that we really thought of, of you know, writing essays and reading books. Um, and now we understand um, that, that there's so much more. Um, so when a child is, is grappling with the instructions about how to play a video game, that's a literacy experience and a very compelling and purposeful one probably for that child. Um, that when we're talking about a television or video um, program that we're viewing and we're trying to make meaning, make sense of what we're watching and reacting to what we're watching, that's literacy. When we're making connections, you know, the Minecraft craze, for example, you know, when we're making connections between uh, the, the Minecraft um, program um, digitally, but then a magazine article that we have about Minecraft and a site with tips for Minecraft and um, instructions for how to make little paper Minecraft characters, when we're connecting all those things uh, together, that's, that's a really um, serious and um, complex opportunity for literacy learning and development. So really just making sure we have a, a real 21st century understanding of what constitutes literacy and that we're open to the many different kinds of texts and the many different purposes for reading, writing, speaking, listening, viewing, and visually representing that exist in the world today. I truly believe in that as as a librarian. I think this kind of 21st century literacies and this concept is is so integral to to what we need to be doing. So I couldn't agree more uh, on those points. So now I I think we're we're coming to an end of our time for our conversation today. But I don't feel like I have tapped even a half of your knowledge, and you have such great depth of knowledge. I am very pleased to be able to talk with you today. And maybe in the future, we can reach out to you again and, and have another conversation about some other things. Well, that would be lovely. And thank you for the kind words and the opportunity to um, talk with you today. I appreciate that you're getting lots of positive messages out about literacy. Nell Duke is a nonfiction writer and researcher. There are many common phrases that people like to say, the best thing since sliced bread, don't judge a book by its cover, and curiosity killed the cat. Now, let's explore a common saying among writers. There's a proverb that says a pen is mightier than a sword. According to that, change is more effective when the power of language is used to change thousands of minds, compared to brute strength that can only affect a few people's lives. But is this a true statement? Let's look back in time to the life of Alexander Hamilton to see if we can't find some answers. He was born in the West Indies in the 1750s, and he was brilliant with a pen from a young age. He used this talent to write a fantastic letter to his father about a hurricane that had blown through his island. This letter demonstrated such literary skill that it was published by the Royal Danish American Gazette. Readers of the paper loved Hamilton so much that they began a fund so that Hamilton could attend school in the American colonies. This one action with a pen helped propel Hamilton towards the center of the American Revolution and gave him the opportunity for a higher education, something not everyone back then was able to get easily. As Alexander Hamilton progressed in life, he kept his pen close at hand. He became a founding father and helped draft the Constitution. 
His biggest legacy was promoting the Constitution through something called the Federalist Papers. These were essays published in the newspaper to help persuade the public to support the U.S. Constitution. It was supposed to be a group effort between a few founding fathers. However, Alexander Hamilton wrote 51 out of the 85 essays published. Because of his words, the Constitution was adopted, and the America we know and love today was formally born. It was Alexander's way with words and power he wielded with a pen that brought him from being a nobody to someone worth remembering hundreds of years later. But it was Alexander's words that also led to his downfall. He refused to take back an insult to a longtime friend slash political enemy. This led to a literal duel between Alexander Hamilton and Aaron Burr. Hamilton died on July 12th in 1804. In this case, it appeared that the pen was not mightier than the sword. Or does it? Alexander Hamilton penned one last letter before he died stating that he intended to waste his only shot during the duel. This final action cemented his legacy as a hero into the volumes of time. So to answer the question, is the pen mightier than the sword? We'd say yes. A picture book tells a story through text and pictures. The story isn't complete without both components. We rely on the imaginations of illustrators in order to visualize the entire story. An entire story can shift tone and meaning with the various creative choices an illustrator can make. And that's an important job. That's why we have book illustrator Julie Olson in the studio today. One of the things that always intrigues me is people see a finished picture book or they see a finished piece of art and they think, oh, that's wonderful. And they, they kind of get this sense of, you know, it just came out of you and it just appeared or, you know, something. But the reality is there's lots of work and lots of steps and issues that go into making a piece of art. So let's talk a little bit about that. Maybe some of, let's start with some of the struggles and challenges that you face as an artist. (laughs) I know know that's a hard question. (laughs) Yeah, I think one of my biggest struggles is not being happy enough with the finished product. And I think a lot of artists face that. And a lot of people say, well, you can just draw, you can just create whatever, you can do it. And that you're so lucky, you're so talented. And they don't realize that it takes a lot of work to develop the ability to create art. It takes a lot of work to develop the ability to see what you need to see to change your art and to make it better. And it also takes a lot of confidence, which there are definitely ebbs and my confidence ebbs and flows in my art, where sometimes I'm just feeling like, oh, I should just give this up. I am not as good as so-and-so. I can never be as good as this other person. I love their art. I should just quit because I'm not progressing or get in that creative slump where you feel like you don't uh, know how to get better or how to create better art. That's really an important thing because I think confidence is huge with that. But like you said, there's this whole piece of it about training and experience. So talk a little bit about the kind of formal and maybe informal training that you've gone through to get you to this point. So when I was young and 
there wasn't YouTube, there wasn't Google image search, there wasn't anything to really teach beyond your art teacher at school. And I know in some areas there probably were art classes that, you know, or, or a private art teacher, but in southern Indiana they just didn't really exist that we knew of. So I would go to the library and check out how to draw books. Uh, my favorite author of those was Lee Ames. And he had the best step-by-step processes and didn't skip all those steps that many of them do. So the first step is to was to really learn how to draw what I could see and copy. And I think that's the most important thing. A lot of parents discourage their children from tracing or from copying things. And that's a really important step. All the masters started out by copying others. And they did that. So it's training to train their eye how to see spatial relationships. So that was the very beginning. And then I started recording Bob Ross on PBS and would set the VCR, those old contraptions, program it to to record while I was at school. And at about 11 years old, I started doing that so that I could come home and paint with my new paint set and try and paint with acrylics what Bob Ross was painting in oil. Very different. But anyway, I was trying to learn from them and I would have to push pause quite a bit because he did a whole painting in a half an hour show and that wasn't happening for me. Beyond that, I did take the standard art classes in high school and, and in grade school. It was required then. They don't even have them very much now, unfortunately. And finally, my junior year in high school was able to take extra art classes. My schedule had opened up enough to take some things like pottery and just the 3D art and um, other things. So beyond that, my education was in college, um, specifically in illustration. And you don't have to have a degree to be an illustrator. However, I think the process of going through the the process of getting a degree is very helpful to running your own business besides the business classes that you have to take to as as part of the degree but the staying disciplined enough to be a successful working illustrator is really important meeting deadlines and you're your own boss and you're your own marketing and all of that and you need the the skills uh, to to run yourself like a business. So I think the education there was very helpful, along with just the hours and hours of figure drawing and exposure to different kinds of illustration and different techniques and different styles. And the education goes on after college in attending conferences and workshops. And to paint the Discover America book, I even took a master class from a watercolor landscape painter, his name is Carl Purcell, and he lives down in Manti, and came up to Bountiful. So I drove north and took a week-long watercolor class with him because I felt like I couldn't paint watercolor landscapes. And I really had to learn how for this book idea that I had, and and I learned a lot from that. However, I, I still feel like I have a long way to go in watercolor and a lot to learn. However, I think that there's... If an artist feels like they have made it or they don't need to learn or don't need to progress, then they probably should take a step back and <laughs> look at their art. Just You need that confidence in your work, but 
I feel like, yeah, there's always some something new to try or something better that I can do with my art. That's wonderful. And I, I love this sense of this process of development just over your career. But there's also this sense of development within an individual piece. And I think a lot of people don't realize, like in writing, you have to revise. But also, you have to do that with your artwork. There's revision. So can you talk a little bit about that revision process that you go through? Yeah, officially, when you're working with a publisher, um, you you don't have to show them anything until the final sketch stage, and then they make their changes. However, sometimes I will show them my character sketches and work on quite a few characters. My first book, Hip Hip Hooray for Annie McRae, which is out of print now, but when I was developing the character for that one, I went through many, many steps of character development trying to figure out who Annie was, and it was really important to get her right because she is a spunky character who needs to who needs to look like it and to be her and so much of who she is has become who she is because of the illustration and you look at like the Harry Potter books and that's completely how it's become the they had to find an actor to look like the illustration on the book because that became so important but i think the the process of revision, um, I think going to school helps you with the process of revision. Because you're going to class and you're getting critiqued, that process of critiquing is really, really important for artists. And if you never go to school or are never in a group situation where your artwork is being critiqued to your face, then you're going to have a really hard time making it as an illustrator because you're not going to know how to take those critiques and make the revisions. You're just going to listen to them and think, my art is horrible. I should quit. Instead of thinking, okay, that there's something wrong here. What did they say about it? And even if they only said what was wrong, what made them think that? Was it this angle that made them nervous? You know, these tangent lines, all of this, was it the design? So there's so many things that you can revise from the shape of things to the design of things to the angle of things to make it more appealing. Uh, you have to you have to take those critiques and learn how to apply them. So how do you balance that, though, between taking your critique and then sticking to your guns as kind of saying, this is the way I want it, you know, and I understand that you respond this way, but this is the way I want it as an artist. So how do you balance that? Um, most of the time in picture books, they give you a lot of free reign, which is very nice and one reason why I like doing picture books. However, I had one experience where the publisher, and I won't say which book, but the publisher wanted me to put whites in the eyes. So I don't know if that makes sense to people who are listening, but you have the eyeball and then you have the white that's on the edge of the the iris, I guess, the colored part of the eye. And I don't usually color my eyes very often anyway, a color. I use much more line now. And so the eye becomes the top of the eyelid and the iris of the eye. And I don't differentiate the bottom of the eyelid. And I don't, I guess that's not the eyelid, but I don't represent <laughs> differentiate the bottom of the eye or the whites of the eyes. And they really wanted whites in the eyes and kind of the full eye drawn. And I said, well, why? I Luckily, I have an agent who can 
diffuse some of these situations and who can then go back to the publisher and not sound offended or frustrated. Um, but I said to my agent, I said, why do I have to put whites in the eyes? I that's not, That's not me. That's not my style. Didn't they look at my portfolio when they hired me? Why do I have to draw these eyes like that? And I was really frustrated in the um, they went back to the publisher, and it was somebody high up enough because it had gotten to the final stage. It was already done, painted, and they wanted this change. And it was somebody who had come in who was high up enough to say, no, it has to be. So my um, agent said, well, you can do it, or they cannot print the book. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> and you don't get your final payment on the book. So I figured out a way to do it. I, the skin tone was almost the same color as white. So I did whites, but I did not draw the bottom of the eye. And so I'm like, there, there's your whites in the eyes. So that, that was the only time I felt like I really had to quote compromise, but I found one that didn't bother me. That's wonderful. And I think this sense of being able to compromise and have, have criticism is a great thing is that all artists need to develop. So tell us in our conclusion here a little bit maybe one of those tips that you would give to parents to help encourage their children in their artwork? What what tip would you give to say, if you were a parent, this is what you should do to, to help encourage your children? Uh, one tip that I always tell kids at schools in the school visit is to practice, practice, practice. And it's pretty much like any other thing that you're going to do. You have to do a lot of it to be good at it. And the other thing is to not give up. Because you'll have various people your whole life, whether it be people in the industry, publishers <laughs> or teachers or parents, whatnot, saying, yeah, I don't think you should do this. You know, either you're not going to make enough money or you're not so good. Um, I could have given up very early in my career had I listened to kind of some of the negative comments. But that, but it's a very subjective field and usually, if you keep working at it and working at your craft and keep trying, you will get get good enough and be pleasing to people that you that you connect with, that your style connects with. That's a perfect way to end. Thanks so much, Julie. Thank you. Julie Olson is a book illustrator. Now, join me around the librarian's table as we talk with librarians from around Utah about children, books, and life at the library. Today, I'm in the studio with Caroline and Shana from the Provo City Library to talk about their book recommendations. So to start out, let's talk books. I think this is this is the best conversation ever. So what what are your thoughts? What what have been some great books that that have come out recently that are just standing out to you? I think so I work in the children's department at the Provo City Library and I think that the 2018 was a really good year for children's books. It was. It was an awesome year. It was too awesome. I had this really hard part about 2018 because it was way too awesome. And I'm like, okay, you know. <laughs> too many good books. Too yeah. many good books. And it hasn't been that way. Mm-hmm. It, at least 
it hasn't felt like it's been that way in a while. I mm-hmm. agree. I think 2017 was kind of an off year. I feel like we're talking sports here. Like, it's kind of an <laughs> off year. It's a building it's year. It's an off year. It's a building year. They're building. <laughs> well, I but, love the analogy. Yeah, so but 2018, I was trying to narrow down to four or five favorite kind of children's books that had come out, and I ended up, I think, with 15 on my list. Okay. Cool. Okay, let's get to all 15. Okay, so, let's okay. cover it. Shana, you, you jump in and tell <laughs> us your 15, too. So Probably one of my favorite for children um, and – up to YA, even into adults, is The Assassination of Brain Wayne Spurge mm, by M.T. Yeah. Anderson. Yeah. Have you read it? He, Yes, I have read it. And he, has, <laughs> he won the Edwards Lifetime Achievement yes, Award this, this year, year, which totally well-deserved. So deserving. Yeah. I was bummed yeah. that they didn't specifically call out this book when they yeah. were awarding him. Yeah. It is part graphic novel, part text. It all plays with the idea that what you see and what you report isn't necessarily what's actually happening. Mm -hmm. And it does it in a way that's never preachy, never overbearing. It's really, really well done, though. And it was, I'm not a big fantasy reader. It has some fantasy elements with elves and goblins. But even as a non-fantasy reader, it's really, really interesting to read. And that would that would probably be my number one favorite book of the year, I would say. And you can make a favorite? I'm shocked. Because out of fifteen, I don't know if I could I don't know if I could rank them. So if I had to I'm pick good. a number one, I anything really different outside the box is always gonna get extra points for me. Excellent. I, I actually have a favorite for the year too. But okay, mine okay. is not, what's your favorite for the so year? So I don't read as many children's books. That's totally but... fine. We can totally recommend non children's so, so we're good. My favorite for the year was probably educated by Tara Westover. It's been a huge oh, name a in mm-hmm. books this year. And it's so interesting, especially growing up as an LDS person, seeing some things in her story that are so familiar and then some things that are so different. This woman who lived in a survivalist family in the wilderness of Idaho with some kind of crazy ideas. So, But it's beautifully written and just a, an incredible story. And that that's one of those ones that I think is just really eye-opening for mm-hmm. a lot of for different anyone. reasons. Yeah, yeah. That's, it, and it's kind of unusual to have that mm-hmm. kind of raw biography, autobiography going on. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, the two very unusual but amazing books. Well, yeah. way to pick your top picks, ladies. Coming <laughs> in <laughs> strong. It's coming in strong. <laughs> you, we're starting off at the top. So, <laughs> so down a little bit from that. <laughs> Probably still as strong, but not just not in the top set. <laughs> there were some great books this year, really. I loved The Book of Boy. Um, it's Catherine Gilbert Murdoch. It was a Newbery honor. Um, it's another one that's a little bit surprising. Um, it is a medieval fantasy novel. Um, the main character, without ruining too much, isn't what he seems to be. Um, they think he's a humpback boy who lived through the plague. Um, and then we find out that there's so much more going on than that. But it's it deals with the idea of pilgrimage and traveling through... Um, kind of medieval Europe. And it's really, really interestingly written. Um, He goes on a quest with this kind of mystical seeming man to find certain objects um, that are relics. And he has to find the true relics um, to almost break a curse. It's a really interesting mix of genres. Um, It was, like I said, it was a Newbery honor from Catherine Gilbert Murdoch. And that was one I really liked this year as well. That's one of the things I've loved about children's literature lately is we've seen this wonderful blending of genres. We Absolutely. see, you know, historical fiction and fantasy going together mm-hmm. and realism and fantasy going together. And I think for readers, that's really exciting because it kind of pushes the boundaries of your comfort zone, but in a really safe way. Absolutely. And I think for young readers, especially, um, it's easier for their minds to work that way. As grownups, we kind of like to put things in boxes. And kids yeah. don't really think that way. I mean, you have nine-year-olds who 
could easily believe that Bigfoot is real. Mm-hmm. And for that reason, it's easier for them to read a realistic book with Bigfoot in it than a total fantasy. Mm-hmm. Such a great point. I really like that. And it, 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 it's those boundaries that we need to pay attention to and then expand in many ways. I love it. Good book. Absolutely. All right. Yeah, I'm um, the one I'm reading right now is The Seven and a Half Lives of Evelyn Hardcastle, ah, uh, which is another yes. kind of genre yeah. bending one because mm-hmm. it's in some ways it's this classic Agatha Christie style mystery. But then the main the narrator is switching bodies, switching characters every day of the story. And so you have this little bit of a sci-fi or fantasy element to it, but then it reads like a classic mystery. Um, and so I think some of the most interesting things that are coming out right now are playing with what we think of. They're messing with the genres a little bit. Yeah. yeah. I don't think genre is a clear-cut thing anymore, mm-hmm. which which is challenging, particularly for us as librarians when we recommend yeah. <laughs> books. It's like, well, this is kind of genre-bending. Is it going to be uh-huh. this neat or that neat or that neat? But in the same way, it makes it difficult, but it also makes it easier because mm-hmm. then we can expand people's understanding of right. genre. <laughs> and get right. someone interested in the type of mm-hmm. book or a genre that they previously thought wasn't mm-hmm. for them. And yeah. helping people reach outside their kind of reading comfort zone, yeah. I think. Yeah, which I think is so important, particularly mm-hmm. for kids. They yes. need to they need Absolutely. to try everything, right? Mm-hmm. You know, it's like you cannot know you don't like broccoli until you try it. Exactly. You know? <laughs> kind of thing. Exactly. Yeah. All right. Well, you know, we're running short on time, so – one more. What? What's that other great title? I've got to throw a YA one in okay, there. Okay, do. And yeah. again, it's probably the biggest YA book of the year, but Children of Blend Bone by uh, Tommy Ariyemi has just been I so loved. wonderful. Um, and I think, again, it's great for people who have been reading YA fantasy for a long time. It's also a great introduction for people who it maybe hasn't been their genre because some of it is so new and innovative and inclusive. Um, and it's just a wonderful story that I I tore through that in just a few days. Yeah, <clears throat> absolutely. Cool, cool. All right. One My other last one. one. Yeah. Um, so the big winner at our Mock Newberry, the Provo City Library holds a exclusive invite only Mock Newberry for kind of local librarians, educators. Um, our um, Sweep, The Story of a Girl and Her Monster by Jonathan Oxier. That was our big title of the night. Um, it is another one of those kind of genre benders. It takes place in Victorian England. It doesn't shy away from the really icky child labor. Mm-hmm. Um, and it has some very unsettling things that are presented in a very kind of compassionate light and that are very well handled. But it also brings in myths of golems. Mm-hmm. And it is, it's almost like written almost like a fairy tale. It has this fairy tale quality, which is so hard to find in contemporary fiction. So. I really love that books like Educated and other things, they really bring that worldly view that we wouldn't necessarily look at, you know, understanding child labor or understanding how different people would be educated in different ways. And that, I think, is the foundational thing of reading, right? Mm -hmm. It brings us to new worlds and helps us see things in new ways, which which is what's exciting about it. Well, thank you, ladies, for some great book recommendations. I really appreciate that you came around the table today to to tell us about some great new books. Thank you. Thanks for having us. I'd like to thank Caroline and Shana for joining me around the librarian's table. We've had a great show today. We talked with L.L. McKinney about her new adaptation of Alice in Wonderland. Then we discussed not-so-good literary practices with researcher Nell Duke. Our last interview was with Julie Olson, where we chatted about how illustrations convey stories. 
If you missed any of today's show, or if you want to listen to it again, you can find it on the BYU Radio app or at byuradio.org, as well as on most podcast apps and websites. If you want to know more about what we do here at Worlds Awaiting, feel free to follow our Instagram at Worlds Awaiting. This has been a production of BYU Radio. Our producer is Cole Wissinger, our student production assistant is Sarah Byington, and our technical advisor is Braden Flint. I'm Rachel Wadham, looking forward to the worlds that are waiting next week. Thank you for exploring with us.